Hello, my darling, and welcome to today's story time. Another man's voice rang through the crowd. Nigh on an hour ago, Seb Wetley here heard the phone a ringing, and it was Miss Corey, George's wife, who lives down by the junction. She says she hired Boy Luther, who was about driving in the cows from the storm after the big bolt, when he sees all the trees abandoned at the mouth of the glen, opposite side to this, and smelt the same awful smell like he smelt when he found the big tracks last Monday morning. And she says, he says, it was a swishing, lapping sound, more nor what the bending trees and bushes could make. And all of a sudden, the trees along the road began to get pushed to one side, and there was an awful stomping and splashing in the mud. But mind you, Luther, he didn't see nothing at all, only just the bending trees and underbrush. Then far ahead, where Bishop's Brook goes under the road, he heard an awful creaking and straining on the bridge. And he says he could tell the sound of wood is starting to crack and split. And all the while, he never see a thing, only them trees and bushes abandoned. And when the swishing sound got very far off on the road towards Wizard Whatley's and Sentinel Hill, Luther, he had the guts to step up to what he heard at first on the ground. It was all mud and water, and the sky was dark, and the rain was whipping about all tracks as fast as could be, but beginning at the glen mouth, where the trees had moved. There was still some of them awful prints as big as he's seen Monday. At this point, the first excited speaker interrupted. But that ain't the trouble now. That was only the start. Zeb here was calling folks up, and everyone was a-listening in. When a call from Seth Bishop's cut in, his housekeeper Sally was carrying on, fit to kill. She just seen the trees abandoned beside the rut, and says there was a kind of mushy sound, like an elephant puffing and treading, a-heading for the house. Then she up and spoke sudden to a fearful smell, and says her boy, Chancy, was a-screamin' at how it was just like what he smelt up to the Watley ruins Monday morning, and all the dogs was a-barkin' and whinin' awful. And then she let out a terrible yell, and says the shed down the road had just caved in like the storm had bloated over, only the wind wasn't strong enough to do that. Everybody was a-listenin', and we could hear lots of folks on the wire gasping. All at once, Sally, she yelled again, and says the front yard picket fence had just crumbled up. There wasn't any sign of what done it. Then everyone on the line could hear Chancy and old Seth Bishop a-yelling, too. And Sally was shrieking about that something heavy had struck the house. Not lightning nor nothing but something heavy again in the front that kept a-launching itself again and again. But we couldn't see nothing about the front winders. And then, and then, lines of fright deepened on every face, and Armitage, 
shaken as he was, had barely poise enough to prompt the speaker. And then Sally shielded out, Oh, help, the house is caving in. And on the wire we could hear a terrible crashing and a whole flock of screaming, just like when Elmer Fire's place was took, only worse. The man paused, and another of the crowd spoke. That's all. Not a sound, nor squeak over the phone after that. Just still like. We that heard it got about fords and wagons, and rounding up as many able-bodied men folk as we could get. We went to Corey's place, and came up here to see what you thought best to do. Not but what I think. It's the Lord's judgment for our inequities that no mortal kin has ever set aside. Armitage saw that the time had come for positive action and spoke decisively to the faltering group of frightened rustics. We must follow it, boys. He made his voice as reassuring as possible. I believe there's a chance of putting it out of business. You men know that those Whatleys were wizards. Well, this thing is a thing of wizardry and must be put down by the same means. I've seen Wilbur Whatley's diary and read some of the strange old books he used to read. And I think I know the right kind of spell to recite to make the thing fade away. Of course, one can't be sure. But we can always take a chance. It's invisible. I knew it would be, but there's a powder in this long-distance sprayer that might make it show up for a second. Later on, we'll try it. It's a frightful thing to have alive, but it isn't as bad as what Wilbur would have been if we'd let him live longer. You'll never know what the world has escaped. Now we've only had this one thing to fight, and it can't multiply. It can, though a lot of harm. So we mustn't hesitate to rid the community of it. We must follow it. And the way to begin is to go to the place that has just been wrecked. Let somebody lead the way. I don't know your roads very well. But I have an idea there might be a shorter cut across lots. How about it? The men shuffled about a moment, and then Earl Sawyer spoke softly. He pointed with a grimy finger through the steadily lessening rain. I guess you get to Seth Bishop's quickest by cutting along the lower meadow here, widening the brook at the low place, and climbing through Carrier's Mountain and the timber lot beyond. That comes about on the upper road mighty near Seth, a little on the other side. Armitage with Rice and Morgan started to walk in the direction indicated, and most of the natives followed slowly. The sky was growing lighter, and there were signs that the storm had worn itself away. When Armitage inadvertently took a wrong direction, Joe Osborne warned him and walked ahead to show the right one. Courage and confidence were mounting, though the twilight of the almost perpendicular wooded hill which lay toward their end of the short cut, and among those whose fantastic ancient trees they had to scramble 
as if up a ladder, put these qualities to a severe test. At length they emerged on a muddy road to find the sun coming out. They were a little beyond the Seth Bishop place, but bent trees and hideously unmistakable tracks showed what had passed by. Only a few moments were consumed in surveying the ruins just around the bend. It was the Fry incident all over again, and nothing dead or living was found in either of the collapsed shells, which had been the Bishop House and Barn. No one cared to remain there amidst the stench and hairy stickiness, but all turned instinctively to the line of horrible print leading on toward the wrecked Whatley farmhouse and the altar-crowned slopes of Sentinel Hill. As the men passed the side of Wilbur Whatley's abode, they shuddered visibly and seemed again to mix hesitancy with their zeal. It was no joke tracking down something as big as a house that one could not see, and you knew it had all of the vicious malevolence of a demon. Opposite the base of Sentinel Hill, the tracks left the road, and there was a fresh bending and matting visible along the broad swath marking the monster's former route to and from the summit. Armitage produced a pocket telescope of considerable power and scanned the steep green side of the hill. Then he handed the instrument to Morgan, whose sight was keener. After a moment of gazing, Morgan cried out sharply, passing the glass to Earl Sawyer and indicating a certain spot on the slope with his finger. Sawyer, being as clumsy as most non-users of optical devices are, fumbled a while, but eventually he focused the lenses with Armitage's aid. When he did so, his cry was less restrained than Morgan's had been. God Almighty, the grass and bushes is moving. It's going up, slow-like, creeping up to the top this minute. Heaven only knows how far. And the germ of panic seemed to spread among the seekers. It was one thing to chase the nameless entity, but quite another to find it. Spells might be all right, but suppose they weren't. Voices began questioning Armitage about what he knew of the thing, and no reply seemed quite to satisfy. Everyone seemed to feel himself in close proximity to phases of nature and of being utterly forbidden and wholly outside the sane experience of mankind. In the end, the three men from Arkham, old white-bearded Dr. Armitage, stocky, iron-gray Professor Rice, and lean, youngish Dr. Morgan, ascended the mountain alone. After much patient instruction regarding its focusing and use, they left the telescope with the frightened group that remained on the road. And as they climbed, they were watched closely by those among whom the glass was passed around. It was hard going, and Armitage had to be helped more than once. High above the toiling group, the great swath trembled as its hellish maker repassed with snail-like deliberateness. Then it was obvious that the pursuers were gaining. Curtis Whatley, 
of the undecayed branch, was holding the telescope when the Arkham party detoured radically from the swath. He told the crowd that the men were evidently trying to get to a subordinate peak, a peak which overlooked the swath at a point considerably ahead of where the shrubbery was now bending. This indeed proved to be true. When the party were seen to gain the minor elevation, only a short time after the invisible blasphemy had passed it, then Wesley Corey, who had taken the glass, cried out when Armitage adjusted the sprayer which Rice held. Something was about to happen. The crowd stirred uneasily. Recalling that this sprayer was expected to give the unseen horror a moment of visibility, two or three men shut their eyes. But Curtis Whatley snatched back the telescope and strained his vision to the utmost. He saw that Rice, from the party's point of vantage above and behind the entity, had an excellent chance of spreading the potent powder with marvelous effect. Those without the telescope saw only an instant flash of gray cloud, a cloud about the size of a moderately large building near the top of the mountain. Curtis, who had held the instrument, dropped it with a piercing shriek into the ankle-deep mud of the road. He reeled and would have crumpled to the ground had not two or three others seized and steadied him. All he could do was moan half inaudibly. Oh, great God, that, that. There was a pandemonium of questioning, and only Henry Wheeler thought to rescue the fallen telescope and wipe it clean of mud. Curtis was past all coherence, and even isolated replies were almost too big for him. It's bigger than a barn, he said, all made of squirming ropes. Whole thing sort of shaped like a hen's egg, bigger than anything, with dozens of legs like hog's head that half shut up when they step. Nothing solid about it, all like jelly and made of separate, wiggling ropes pushed close together. Great bulging eyes all over it. Ten or twenty mouths or trunks sticking about all the sides, big as stovepipes, and all tossing and opening and shutting, all gray, with kinder blue or purple rings, and God in heaven, the half-face on top. Spinal memory whatever it was, proved too much for poor Curtis, and he collapsed completely before he could say more. Fred Farr and Will Hutchins carried him to the roadside and laid him on the damp grass. Through the lenses were discernible three tiny figures, apparently running towards the summit as fast as the steep incline allowed. Only these and nothing more. And everyone noticed a strangely unseasonable noise in the deep valley behind, and even in the underbrush of Sentinel Hill itself. It was the piping of unnumbered whippoorwills, and in their shrill chorus there seemed to lurk a note of tense and evil expectancy. Earl Sawyer now took the telescope and reported the three figures as standing on the topmost ridge, 
virtually level with the altar stone, but at a considerable distance from it. One figure, he said, seemed to be raising its hands above its head at rhythmic intervals. And as Sawyer mentioned the circumstance, the crowd seemed to hear a faint, half-musical sound from the distance, as if a loud chant were accompanying the gestures. The weird silhouette of that remote peak must have been a spectacle of infinite grotesqueness and impressiveness. But no observer was in a mood for aesthetic appreciation. I guess he's saying the spell, whispered Wheeler as he snatched back the telescope. The whippoorwills were piping madly, and then a singularly curious, irregular rhythm, quite unlike that of the visible ritual. Suddenly the sunshine seemed to lessen without the intervention of any discernible cloud. It was a very peculiar phenomenon, and was plainly marked by all. A rumbling sound seemed brewing beneath the hills, mixed strangely with a concordant rumbling, which clearly came from the sky. Lightning flashed aloft, and the wondering crowd looked in vain for the portents of a storm. The chanting of men from Arkham now became unmistakable, and Wheeler saw through the glass that they were all raising their arms in the rhythmic incantation. From some farmhouse, far away, came the frantic barking of dogs. The change in the quality of the daylight increased, and the crowd gazed about the horizon in wonder. A purplish darkness, born of nothing more than a spectral deepening of the sky's blue, pressed down upon the rumbling hills. Then the lightning flashed again, somewhat brighter than before, and the crowd fancied that it had shown a certain mistiness around the altar stone on the distant height. No one, however, had been using the telescope at that instant. The whippoorwills continued their irregular pulsation, and the men of Dunwich braced themselves tensely against some imponderable menace with which the atmosphere seemed supercharged. Without warning came those deep, cracked, raucous, vocal sounds, which will never leave the memory of the stricken group who heard them. Not from any human throat were they born, for the organs of man can yield no such acoustic perversions. Rather would one have said they came from the pit itself, had not their source been so unmistakably the altar stone on the peak. It is almost erroneous to call them sounds at all since so much of their ghastly, infrabase timber spoke to dim seats of consciousness and terror, far subtler than the ear. Yet one must do so, since their form was indisputably, though vaguely that of half-articulate words. They were loud, loud as the rumblings and the thunder above which they echoed. Yet did they come from no visible being, and because imagination might suggest a conjectural source in the world of non-visible beings. The crowd huddled at the mountain's base, huddled still closer, and winced, as if in expectation of a blow. Yog, so thought. Yog, so thought. 
you think I a dog so thought rang out the hideous croaking of the voice. A speaking impulse seemed to falter here, as if some frightful psychic struggle were going on. Henry Wheeler strained his eye at the telescope, but saw only the three grotesquely silhouetted human figures on the peak, all moving their arms furiously in strange gestures as their incantation drew near its culmination. From what Blackwell's of acharontic fear or feeling, from what unplumbed gulfs of extra-cosmic consciousness or obscure, long-latent heredity were those half-articulate, thunder-croakings drawn. Presently they began to gather renewed force and coherence as they grew in stark, utter, ultimate frenzy. Yogg so thought they heard, Help! Help! Father! Yogg so thought. But that was all. The pallid group in the road, still reeling at the indisputably English syllables that had poured thickly and thunderously down from the frantic vacancy beside that shocking stone altar, were never to hear such syllables again. Instead, they jumped violently at the terrific rapport which seemed to rend the hills, a deafening, cataclysmic peal whose source be it inner earth or sky, no hearer was ever able to place. Then a single lightning bolt shot from the purple zenith to the altar stone, and a great tidal wave of viewless force, an indescribable stench, swept down from the hill to all the countryside. Trees, grass, and underbrush were whipped into a fury and a frightened crowd at the mountain's base, weakened by the lethal feeder that might asphyxiate them, were almost hurled off their feet. Dogs howled from the distance. Green grass and foliage wilted to a curious, sickly yellow-gray, and all through the field and forest were scattered the bodies of dead whippoorwills. The stench left quickly, but the vegetation never came right again. To this day, there is something strange and unholy about the growths on and around that fearsome hill. Curtis Watley was only just regaining consciousness when the Arkham men came slowly down the mountain in the beams of a sunlight, once more brilliant and untainted. They were grave and quiet and seemed shaken by memories and reflections even more terrible than those which had reduced the group of natives to a state of coward, quivering. In reply to a jumble of questions, Billy shook their heads and reaffirmed one vital fact. The thing has gone forever, Armitage said. It has been split up into what it was originally made of and can never exist again. It was an impossibility in a normal world. Only the least fraction was really matter, in any sense we know now. It was like its father, 
and most of it has gone back to him in some vague realm or dimension outside our material universe, some vague abyss out of which only the most accursed rites of human blasphemy could ever have called for him a moment on the hills. There was a brief silence, and in that pause the scattered senses of poor Curtis Whatley began to knit back into a sort of continuity. He put his hands to his head with a moan. Memory seemed to pick itself up where it had left off, and the horror of the sight that had prostrated him burst in upon him again. Oh, oh my God, that half-face, that half-face on top of it, he cried. That face with the red eyes and white hair and no chin, just like the Whatley's. It was like an octopus, centipede, spider kind of thing. But there was a half-shaped man's face on top of it, and it looked like Wizard Whatley's, only it was yards and yards across. He paused, exhausted, as the entire group of natives stared in bewilderment, not quite crystallized into fresh terror. Only old Zebulon Whatley, who wanderingly remembered ancient things, but had been silent heretofore, spoke aloud. Fifteen year gone, he said. I hear old Whatley say, as how some day we'd hear a child of Lavinie's a call on its father's name on the top of Sentinel Hill. But Joe Osborne interrupted him to question the Arkham men anew. What was it anyhow? And however did young wizard Whatley call it about into the air it came from? Armitage chose his words very carefully. It was, well, it was mostly a kind of force that doesn't belong in our part of space. A kind of force that acts and grows and shapes itself by other laws than those of our sort of nature. We have no business calling in such things from outside. And only very wicked people and very wicked cults ever try to. There was some of it in Wilbur Whatley himself. Enough to make a devil and a precocious monster of him and to make his passing a pretty terrible sight. I'm going to burn his accursed diary. And if you men are wise, you'll dynamite that altar stone up there, and you'll pull down all the rings of standing stones on the other hills. Things like that that brought down the beings those Watleys were so fond of. The beings they were going to let in, tangibly, to wipe out the human race and drag the earth off to some nameless place for some nameless purpose. But as to this thing we've just sent back, the Whatleys raised it for a terrible part in the doings that were to come. It grew fast and big, and the same reason that Wilbur grew fast and big. But it beat him, because it had a greater share of the outsideness in it. You needn't ask how Wilbur called it out of the air. He didn't call it out. It was his twin brother, even though it looked more like the father than he did.
this, my darling, ends our story time for today. As always, I hope that you have very sweet and creepy dreams. Good night.